Welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast, a podcast designed for you with insights from fellow members as well as NFP and Partners Financial experts. Hi, I'm Kristen Bulat. Thank you for joining me in this latest episode of the Partners Financial Podcast. Today, I'm excited because I'm joined by Phil Spaulding, who is the CEO and founder of the QLS program. Phil is also now a partner at WealthPoint, and he's here to talk to us all about QLS. Thanks for joining us today. Sure, Kristen. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. That's great. Um, so let's jump right in. And can you start by just talking to me about what QLS is and you know, give us sort of a high level of what we need to know? Yeah, I mean, um, basically, QLS is an exit strategy for retirement plans, either defined benefit plans or defined contribution plans. And it really um, morphed out of some old transactions that were very popular kind of in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, the old version was called pension rescue. And, and basically after all the rules got cleared up, um, figured out how to make it work again. So what you're doing is not pension rescue, right? No. And in fact, that's kind of a bad word in the industry. We try not to say pension rescue. (laughs) Sorry. I didn't mean to swear at you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the old version was, you know, basically if you purchase a life insurance policy inside a retirement plan, I'm really talking about a defined contribution plan. Um, life insurance is the only asset that can come out of a retirement plan tax-free if it's purchased out. And that's based on a Department of Labor ruling, a prohibited transaction exemption that's really been around since the 70s. And the whole reason for it was that both the IRS and Department of Labor look at life insurance as a benefit inside a retirement plan, not like a stock bond or mutual fund where obviously those, when they come out, they're taxable. So basically what they said is, you know, if someone buys a life insurance policy in their retirement plan and their life changes or their job changes, there should be a way to take that policy with them if they happen to purchase it inside their plan. And they might've done it just to ensure their retirement plan. Let's say they're the breadwinner of the family and they Worried if they die early, they still want the family to have a good retirement. So the old version was that prohibited transaction exemption was there that you could purchase the policy out, but there was a gray area on the value. In fact, there was a notice that came out from the IRS that said you could use the cash surrender value as the value. And I'm I'm assuming that most of the people that would take time to listen to this podcast probably know a little bit about life insurance. Otherwise, there are people that are just really bored to listen to a podcast about life insurance. But if you're familiar with life insurance, and I'm sure all of you are, you're familiar with a surrender charge. It's early in a policy. So under the old rules, you can imagine if you put a bunch of money into an insurance policy and there was a big surrender charge, and you could actually use that when you looked at the valuation you could buy the, you know, you could put a million dollars into a policy and buy it out for a hundred thousand. So that was obviously way too good for the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. And uh, another big surprise, Kristen, back in the old days of pension rescue, um, there was a little bit of greed that kicked in, both from the, you know, insurance carriers, and they started building products that would spring up in value. That's where that springing cash value term I came. Remember from. that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. The old version had a gray area and the gray area didn't have anything to do with 
this allowance, this prohibited transaction exemption that allowed you to buy it out, it just had to do with the fair market value. Okay. And so how is QLS different from that thing that shall no longer be named? Okay. So let me just, you know, I'll I'll stick with the same line because I think the history is important. It kind of reveals what what happened. So in, um, in 2002, 2003, some notices came out from the IRS. And basically they said that, you know, this is way too good for the taxpayer. We've learned about these springing cash value products. So we're going to review this. And uh, that's at that time, I got a, a phone call from my partner, Andy Winehouse, who uh, don't forget me to touch on him later because he's, he's pretty key and pretty great to have on the team. He's an attorney. Um, and Andy called me and said, hey, Phil, it's all over. They're, they're reviewing this thing. So for two years, between 2003 and 2005, um, we waited to find out if they were going to completely get rid of this prohibited transaction exemption or if they were going to focus on the valuation. So after some question and comment period, in fact, the insurance lobby got involved because originally they said, Whatever you paid in premium, that's the value. But it was successfully argued that there are acquisition costs. So that should be taken into account on the valuation. Um, And then in 2005, the IRS actually gave us a safe harbor ruling on valuation, uh, RevProc 2005-25. And basically that, that defined the safe harbor ruling as being the greater of the interpolated terminal reserve or the perk value. So the bottom line is after 2005, I was excited because it was great business before. Now they cleared up all the gray areas. I knew that we could still buy a policy inside a retirement plan. And now the valuation on purchasing it out was cleared up. The problem was the juice was gone. You know, now you had to pay somewhere between 60 and 85 cents on the dollar of whatever you paid in premiums to buy the policy out. So it kind of felt like you were just trading pockets. You know, the policy would come out, but then you'd send a chunk of money back into your plan. So it felt like half the transaction was great, but the other half, your, your money's back in tax jail. Mm-hmm. So what QLS is, is, you know, for years, I kept looking at the thing because it was such great business and I kept running numbers and about seven years ago, um, I was driving home one night and started thinking about this transaction in terms of two separate buckets of money. You have the dollars in the retirement plan, and I knew I could get those out. That that worked. But what am I going to do about the other dollars, the buyout dollars that went back into the plan? And that's when I started thinking about the Roth conversion rules where we could immediately do a Roth conversion after we reimburse the plan. And QLS is a methodology and a way to deal with that one and only Roth tax. And and it's grown from there where we have both a retirement income approach, we've got a charitable planning approach, we've got a premium finance approach, and and, uh, we built software and got tax memos and, you know, it's it's been going really well. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. So as our listeners are sitting here thinking about... um, retirement plans with lots of money in them and the ways to use life insurance and to take advantage of the QLS, who within their books of business should they be thinking about for this plan? What client is well-suited to using the QLS strategy? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I, 
we really take a holistic planning approach. Um, just to start with a little background on that, the, my fear with QLS is that it feels very transactional, but you don't want to do, you don't want to look at these buckets of money just by themselves. You know, you really want to look at the big picture. And we talk a lot about living capital versus succession capital. Living capital is the money you need for your lifetime. Make sure that you don't run out. And succession capital is all the money that you're not going to use. So when you're looking at your clients, if they have a large balance of money in their retirement plan, it's both the worst living capital that they have, and it's also the worst succession capital that they have. You know, you never want to take out more than your required minimum distributions. Otherwise, you're forcing an income tax. But the problem is, if you don't spend the money, then you have a high enough net worth, then it's subject to double tax at death. So, you know, the right clients, um, we like to see people that have at least a million dollars in their retirement plan and a net worth of four or five million and up. And the reason for that is there's a lot involved in the transaction. Um, They should have their own business. We need to have a profit sharing plan. And if they're fully retired, then we have to do some entity planning so that they have earned income because you have to have earned income to have a profit sharing plan. But for our, our retirement income approach, we really like to see them 65 and younger because okay. I need enough time to grow money in the policy and in the Roth so I can have an impact um, at retirement age on their income. Uh, for wealth transfer, it's really any age and we can we can use a second to die policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's just really a matter of, you know, on the first bucket of money, the cost of leaving dollars in your retirement plan or all the taxes and asset management fees. And remember, when we buy that insurance and either get it totally out of the estate or get it in our hands for retirement income, um, our cost is the cost of that insurance wrapper. So, and, you know, the estate planning gets a little bit more intricate, but I mentioned Andy Winehouse, who's a part equity owner in my company and on the team. Andy was actually the attorney when he was the head of advanced planning for a general American, a major life insurance company, uh, he wrote some memos that were adopted into law by the IRS that allow us to sell a policy directly from a retirement plan to an irrevocable life insurance trust, as long as it's a grantor trust. That's the expansion to the prohibited transaction exemption. Um, Because for income tax purposes, it's the alter ego. If you're the grantor of an islet, or the plan owner, you're paying the income tax mm-hmm. on either side. Right. And how does premium finance fit into the QLS strategy? Um, we're really excited about that. I mean, if, if, if you think about premium finance, in, in my mind, it only works well if the client has some skin in the game. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've always shied away from any type of premium finance where we're rolling up all the interest. This is just my own personal preference and, and my desire to sleep well at night. Um, but you know, so with premium finance, um, if we can start a policy off with dollars from the retirement plan and we don't start the financing until the policy comes out, I've already got a bunch of cash in my policy before I even start my financing. So in effect, uh, the government's helping us with our skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that, um, you know, we don't even have collateral show up. If we're design a seven pay and and the first two premiums are retirement plan dollars, we can typically get another five premiums in there if we're paying interest 
without collateral showing up. And we have a lot of nuances we built in. I didn't mention, Kristen, but you know, we built software that has 30,000 lines of code in it. So you can, you can change the tax rates, investment returns. I mean, you can, you can really try to break the model and make the math not work. I built that because um, I hate going to meetings and having some advisors start saying, what if, got to go back to the office, rerun all the numbers. I, I built it so real time we can kind of repopulate everything. But with premium finance, we can, we can finance the buyout. We can finance more premiums. We can finance the Roth. So there's just a lot of different combinations of, of things that we can finance. So more on the real-time changing of numbers. When if one of our listeners has a client that would fit well in the QLS program and they reach out to you, how does you how do you help support them in the process? And, you know, is it you give them a thing and they run with it? Do you go with them? Talk about sort of that relationship and how they can utilize you and your team. Yeah, it's a joint work model. Um, so you know, initially the, the best thing to do is just get me in there as soon as possible. And I will, I will help open the case. Um, you know, sometimes we get into the meeting with the client and if we want to get to the point where they actually understand how the money's moving and we start stress testing, then we do it live there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, we're being much more selective. We, we also have a model where we, We actually license people to be managing producers or really partners where after they've shown that they're going to, you know, keep us out of trouble and, and they can kind of run with this thing and do joint work with other advisors. That's how we're scaling the business. Then they become a managing producer and, and, um, you know, can really get more access to the software. But, you know, with, with my merging my business into WealthPoint, we're really doing much of the design now. So mm-hmm. it's it's really a, a joint work model. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, we heard a lot about the Secure Act a couple of years ago. How did the Secure Act impact the QLS strategy? That's oh, great advertising. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll get specific in a minute, but anytime there's major changes like that, um, you know, what happens is people go to their tax advisors and say, "What happened? I heard the rules changed." So that alone has been really helpful. Um, you know, the little bone that they threw out was you can start taking your required minimum distributions at age 72. And, um, you know, that's, that's just a little bit of help, but what they also did was they eliminated the stretch. They limited it to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And if you really think about it, that's one of the biggest tax grabs that the IRS has put in place in a long time. You know, typically what, what the IRS does is they make rules that are you know, money now, short-term money, but long-term is not so great. That's why we have the debt that we have. They right. actually did a good job with this one. They did some long-range planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're all frustrated, but it, part of me was like, huh, someone's actually thinking mm-hmm. you know, over there. So, right. so it's been great advertising. And the other part of the SECURE Act uh, that really helped us was prior to the passing of the SECURE Act, there were some real gray areas on defined benefit plans as to what is season money. Okay. We didn't touch on season money, but you have to use season money for these transactions. Um, And with the secure act, they really allowed for a loosening up of the in-service distribution rules where we feel very solid now that if someone's over 59 and a half, 
and they shut down their defined benefit plan and move the money over to a profit sharing plan, that the money is seized in day one in that profit sharing plan. If they're okay. under 59 and a half, they have to wait for two years. Okay. But it opened up DB plans. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And the strategy that you're doing is you take the money in the profit sharing plan, buy a life insurance policy inside the plan, and then you use outside money to buy it out of the plan, right? Correct. Okay. And the financing comes in that we can borrow the money we need to pay to buy the life insurance policy out. We can finance the buyout. Mm -hmm. We don't do that design as often, but we can. Okay. Okay. The, The thinking is that you know, if I have cash, mm-hmm. that money is going to be repositioned into a Roth. Right. So maybe I wouldn't even want to finance it because there's no other way to turn outside money into a Roth. Okay. Um, however, let's say that that all I have was marketable securities and I had big gains and I don't want to trigger a capital gain because you have to buy the policy out with cash. Mm-hmm. Now I might want to finance some or part of the buyout. Okay. Um you know, or, or we finance the Roth tax oh, okay. or, or additional premiums. So mm-hmm. there's many different ways to apply the financing uh, to the strategy. It's really client specific. Right. And then once you buy the policy out, you're converting that profit sharing plan into the Roth. Correct. Okay. So then you so, have two buckets of tax-free money. I love it. Yeah. You move two buckets of tax-free money and you trigger one tax, which is the Roth conversion tax. Mm-hmm. And then we we have a way to really minimize your cost on that tax. You okay. know, if I, if I have a million dollars that was taxable, and that million dollars can now be a tax-free Roth, and I'm just financing the interest on that conversion. Mm-hmm. You know, if I convert a million bucks to a Roth, I've got a I've got a four hundred thousand dollar tax bill. But if I borrow that money, now I'm paying simple interest on four hundred grand in exchange for tax-free growth on a million. Mm-hmm. So simple interest on a little bucket for compound growth on a big bucket, Right. that math is going to work for you. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I think this is very exciting. Um, I expect that lots of people are going to have clients that are interested in this and they're going to want to talk to you. So what is the best way for all of our listeners and everyone in Partners Financial to get in touch with you? Yeah. So. Um, we didn't touch on charitable QLS. Can I just sure, mention that absolutely. real quick? So mm-hmm. there's only a few ways to get money out of a retirement plan. That's the other thing I like is that they can't go out and learn 50 different ways to get money out. Mm-hmm. It's really, you know, wait for RMDs, take distributions or do a Roth. And if you don't need it, give it to charity or do the stretch. That's the whole list. Mm-hmm. So those that really don't need their plan and they're, they're terribly minded, we have a way for them to basically get the balance of their plan to charity now. And by doing so, turn outside dollars into a tax-free Roth, really at at no cost. So that's all I'll talk about that right now, but we have a wonderful charitable approach. So the way to get in touch, probably email is the best. And um, I'll give you uh, Kristen's email, KRI. Well, let, before we do that, because I'm sure nobody has a pen, okay. I just wanted to know your preferred way of contact because Kristen, who is your lovely right-hand person, sent For me years. some documents uh-huh. um, with her contact info and yours. And so I just wanted to know if you preferred that they reach out to Kristen or to you. So that's perfect. That will Those documents will be included in the email launching this podcast. 
So that'll be right there. People can listen and then read the documents and know how to get in touch with you. Also, Matt Douglas is the business development person at Partners that you work with. So you can get in touch with Matthew as well. Um, so there's a couple different ways to reach out, but Kristen is, I agree. She's very responsive and easy to get a hold of. So she's a great place to start. And they can reach out to me also, but just copy Kristen. Okay, perfect. <laughs> yeah. That works out well. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate well, Kristen, you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing your expertise and this really exciting strategy. Great. Looking forward to hearing from people.